Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 644, with Chef Charles Clark and Grant Cooper. We don't try to ask a customer what they need. We try to anticipate what they need. We think two steps ahead of them. As they're coming in the restaurant, we open the door for them. As they're exiting the restaurant, the customer service is over. When the valet pulls their car, they get in the car. When they're driving off, it is ended. But before then... We're doing everything in our power for them to have a great experience. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. It doesn't get easier than cake. Cake is the point of sale built for restaurants. That's easy to set up and use with cloud-based access from any device, 24 seven customer support and a lifetime access to cake university. How could you not love cake to learn more about cake point of sale? Head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable. And because you're a restaurant unstoppable listener, you will save $750 off activation. Again, that's trycake.com slash unstoppable. Unstoppable. For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365 a value of $5,000. And with excitement, allow me to introduce today's guest, Chef Charles Clark and Grant Cooper. Are you two men feeling unstoppable today? <laughs> it's like a it's like a show. It's like a Broadway show. The curtains open. You have no choice but to feel unstoppable. Yes. Everybody thinks you are, so you have to portray yourself as unstoppable. And so, that, yeah, I think so. And that was Chef Clark on the mic. Grant, how are you feeling? Feeling ready to go. All right. Kickoff time. Get familiar with these voices. All right. So uh, Clark Cooper Concepts, led by Chef Charles Clark and Grant Cooper, is the group behind Abiza, Brasserie 19, Copa, Oysteria, Punk's Simple Southern Food, and the Dunlavy uh, was brought to life in 2001 when they decided to share their passion for food and the dining experience. The driven duo constantly strives to be at the forefront of the Houston restaurant industry with concepts that are chic, sophisticated, and provide customers with an experience of undeniable experience and spirit. I, obviously, this is just a short intro. We are not doing you justice. I cannot wait to dive into your stories, but let's get that motivational and inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. Why don't you take it away, Grant? Yeah, I think uh, 
I guess if you want to call it a mantra is, uh, with Clark Cooper Concepts is, every, you know, everything is kind of derived from uh, passion is on the forefront um, on a lot of things we do. Um, I think without that, we, you know, we, you really don't have uh, a good start. Beautiful. And uh, Chef Charles, oh, what do you have for us? You know, when you said that uh, we're always, you know, we're at the top of the game in the city and all this, I, you know, it's weird. When Grant and I started it, we didn't have a level of what we wanted to do. We wanted to do what was passion-motivated, what we wanted to do, and it just happened to be this style of restaurants. And it's kind of funny how it morphed into this, but we never looked at it as a, as a, uh, a level of service, a level of this. We wanted it to be the best that we could in our style from the color of the chairs to the type of lights we use to the wine it just it kind of morphed into our style kind of an extension of what we are it, which happens to be you know i guess a good restaurant but you know it, we didn't plan it to oh we're going to start with we want to be the best most high-end expensive restaurant in the city we're nothing like that we just wanted to do something good that had energy that people would come back two to three days a week. Beautiful. So passion is something that comes up all the time in the show, uh, especially when I ask my guests. You'll get this question later. What's your if factor? They say passion or work ethic. What is passion exactly to you? I mean, in the dictionary, it's defined as a, a, an barely controllable emotion. So what, I'm curious, is your definition, what emotion are you feeling when you think of passion? I think um, it's kind of... Uh a love for food in itself. So a lot of times when uh, I'll do an interview with a, a, a potential employee, I won't really go through the litany of questions that may be more typical of an interview. I really want to get to know the person. So uh, I want to know what they ate last night. If they go on a date, where do they like to go? Did they cook anything? What's in their pantry? Things like that. Uh, just to see if they actually even like food, honestly. Um, because, uh, you know, without that little bit of a passion, I, I think uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. So we want to surround ourselves with people that literally like to talk about food, think about food, where they might be having dinner that night, where they're going to go for lunch uh, the next day, things of those nature. Uh, I'll ask them, you know, tell me a joke. I want to know if they have a personality they can think on, uh, on their toes. So, uh, you know, we, we try to dig deeper into the individual to see what kind of passion they have, what motivates them. Do they work out? Do they have self-discipline? Things like that. Chef Charles, same question. What is passion to you? Um, it's just people that come in the restaurant when we hire, like Grant said, you know, if I'm interviewing a cook, um, if someone starts off, well, how much vacation time do I get? That's kind of a negative thing to me. I like people that, you know, hey, can I start today? I can start right now, man. Tell me what you want me to do. Uh, not that I would hire them right then, but for, for them to say that, it just tells me, hey, they're open to do whatever it takes. Yeah. And I love that. But, you know, someone goes, well, how much vacation to a time? And then if you, if, if you make them an offer or something, well, I really have to talk to my girlfriend and see. You know, she only <laughs> says I can do this. I'm like, ah, that's not my kind of guy. <laughs> not that you shouldn't talk to your partner. It's just that. Come on, be a man yeah, here for the interview. Let's make a decision. Yeah, uh, you know, from awesome. yourself. Great way to get this conversation started. So uh, I want to kind of break off and kind of get an idea of who we're talking to individually before we bring our stories. Before your stories cross paths, and like I think it was the late '90s, right when you guys really started. Eighties, eighties. Okay, so um, eighty-seven. Let's start with Chef Charles. Uh, what? How did you get into this industry? Take us from to like the beginning uh, when you knew this was going to be your life, your career. Man, I, I graduated from high school barely, 
1980 in a small town in Louisiana, 60 people in my graduating class, and 90% of them went to work for a gas refinery in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and the other 3 to 5% went to work on the railroad, and the other 3% went to college. So I, I, had, I knew I wasn't going to college, couldn't afford it, or I didn't, wasn't smart enough, or my grades weren't good enough. So I had a choice whether to go work for a gas refinery. And you, you always have these connections. My uncle has this, my uncle has this, and I could get a job doing this. But I just, I, to me, it's just like, it's so boring. Why am I going to go right to a gas refinery and work till I'm 65 years old? I just, I, to me, it was so boring. So I loaded up my car, and I headed to Texas, and I got a job working at a restaurant. And as a waiter, as a busboy waiter type things, and and I never looked back. So that's how I got into the hospitality injury, uh, a business is is working as sorting as a busboy, uh, um, a waiter, a back waiter, a front waiter, and captain, fine dining, and all that. And finally, I jumped into uh, the kitchen by going to culinary school because I'd worked in front of the house so long that it was a natural thing for me because I love food almost more than I love the front of the house. So back then, chefs were screaming and throwing plates. It didn't look fun. Mm -hmm. It didn't look like you made any money. But then you'd see people like Emeril Lagazzi and out of New Orleans. They were coming out of the kitchen into the dining room. And uh, and nobody had ever seen that in the late 80s, you know. And so I decided to go to culinary school in 96 at a ripe age of 34 which not many people do, but I think it was a benefit for me because going to school at 20 or 21, you're not serious about it. All you want to do is party and get high or get drunk or whatever. At 34, you're like, ah, that clock's ticking. I better take this serious. I'm paying for school. I'm doing everything. So that's how I got into it. I went to school at 34, and I graduated at, what, 36. And uh, Grant had been friends years before that and to this day. Okay, so I love when I hear people that uh, choose to go to culinary school later in life because they almost always make way more out of the experience. Uh, they, they're far more mature. They're 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 recognizing the value of that dollar that they're investing in their career, and they're just they're just getting way more out of that. Um, what was is there any like key point in your life up to this point? Um, somebody who had an influence on you, who really steered you in the direction of, be- of becoming a chef. One key mentor before we really start diving into to Grant's come up story. Yeah, there was one guy, he was a, a French guy, a French chef. I worked for him in Dallas, Texas. His name was Damien Wattel. It was a little restaurant called Wattel's. Grant used to eat there sometimes when he could afford it, when he saved enough of his tips from working in an ice house. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he was serving rabbit at the time. He, you know, he taught me how to eat. After the shift, we would sit down and eat a lamb shank with French Dijon mustard, a glass of Calderon red wine. He taught me how the French would do things and it just stuck in my head and then it became natural it became like elevator music you know you you have this course this is a cheese course this is a, a you know a certain wine you have with this entree and um, I just love the ideal of French dining because it it just made sense you know having a an espresso letting the espresso set for five minutes till it's room temperature till you just drinking in one sip things like that and uh, he was the biggest influence on my probably culinary career and i still have a couple of dishes 
that I, when I was young, that I used to serve at that restaurant. And actually, I cooked those dishes today, like a lamb shank is uh, something I have on the menu that came from Damien Wattel. And Damien is still in the business. He's in San Antonio, Texas, married. And um, we still, we're still friends today. And this was 25 years, 30 years ago. Okay. Um, I like to focus on one key mentor, uh, at least one mentor, one spot where you work that helped form who you are today. So who, who was one mentor who stands out in your life that really helped transform who you are today? Probably about 1985, uh, a little restaurant called Wattel's Bistro. Uh, in Dallas, Texas, Damien Wattel, uh, a classically trained chef from uh, Lille, from Lille, France. He moved over here in like 84, 85. I went to work for him in 85 or 86. He was, we were the same age, and uh, I was a waiter, and he was the chef, and he taught me. It was a 65-seat restaurant. He taught me pretty much, uh, you know, the proper way of uh, service, uh, cooking, uh, classic French, and he was my probably my biggest influence, and we're still friends today. So what about how to be, how to act, how to conduct yourself? How did he teach you to become the man you are today? Not just how to cook, uh, but the values. You know, I, I don't think he taught me as much as about that as, as just working in restaurants and fine dining, especially in the Dallas in the late 80s. Um, presenting yourself in the front of the house you know i worked in restaurants where i had to wear a tuxedo sometimes and i worked you know restaurants a little dressier back then but um you know just working in the front of the house i think you become aware more of etiquette things like that get into detail why do you think we discover etiquette in those those certain uh, emotional uh strengths uh why why do you think that 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 is so crucial in becoming a restaurant getting that front of house experience well, um, Grant and I, even in the early days when we opened the bees, um, say um, if uh, a lady gets up to go to the restroom, you know, we're there to pull her chair as she goes to the restroom, pull her chair as she comes back, fold the napkin. If she's gone, we fold the napkin, put it in place, rearrange the silverware, uh, little things like that. I, I, I don't... To me, this is etiquette. To a lot of people, they don't even think about it. They, they would never do it. But if there's four people at a table, a lady gets up, goes to the restroom, and her steak is there, her fish is there, Grant would run over and keep it warm in the kitchen and tell the customer, I'm going to keep this warm. And then when the lady comes back, bring her food. Little bitty things like that would, to us, is proper etiquette in the restaurant. And and people, you go to a restaurant nowadays, people don't even do that. You know, they, they don't. Some some restaurants do. I mean, it depends on, you know, where you're at. But What's going on when you do that? Like, what's that? What is that communicating to the guests? It's just, and it's, what we call it, it we, we don't try to ask a customer what they need. We try to anticipate mm. what they need. We think two steps ahead of them. As they're coming in the restaurant, we open the door for them. As they're exiting the restaurant, this, the customer's service is over. When the valet pulls their car, they get in the car. When they're driving off, it is ended. But before then, we're doing everything in our power for them to have a great experience. I love it. I love it. Any other key experiences, uh, key mentors, key jobs that you had uh, before crossing paths with Grant uh, that are worth bringing to the surface before we, we head over to share Grant's backstory? Mostly chefs in Dallas. You know, right before I met Grant uh, in the early 80s, I was there. I moved there in 82. And uh, a lot of chefs had influences on me, even though I wasn't in the kitchen. Uh, a lady named Nancy Beckham uh, had a couple of restaurants. And 
and you know these chefs were busting their butts and cooking every day and i was just amazed at what they would do and you know so they had a big influence on me as far as service people there was a couple of managers i worked at a restaurant called the grape on laura greenville it's still open today it was opened by two ladies in 1972 for forty five hundred dollars i remember them telling me that story it's worth a couple of million now probably but uh chalkboard menu and i learned a lot about service i learned a lot about uh um just a way to take care of a guest from uh some managers that worked there tim rooney was one of the managers back in the 80s uh mark gilsdorf and um you know i i learned from mostly restaurant people everything i that i put into my restaurants came from somewhere that i've worked in mostly dallas so what were the biggest give me one big lesson that you weren't you learned from these ladies like how they influence who you are today one big lesson yeah um you never use the word no i'd say um even you call a restaurant nowadays and you ask for a reservation for six people and then I go, no, I can't do it. They go, I'm sorry, we're fully committed. You never say the word no. I learned a long time ago in Dallas, if somebody, if a customer asks you for a Rolls Royce, you say, sure, I'll have it delivered to the restaurant. I add 20% to it and it's yours. It'll be waiting in the parking lot. Yeah. You, you get a customer anything they want and Grant and I believe 100%, whatever the customers want, want we'll make it happen. Grant, um, there's a lady that came in our Ibiza and the first year we're opening she goes god i love the key lime pie at, at this restaurant down the road they make the best one you should make one grant went got his car drove and bought a whole key lime pie from that restaurant came back before she finished her entrees and presented her with a key lime pie from her favorite restaurant mm. that's service yeah just because you, you haven't done it in your restaurant before and it might be more difficult to make it happen doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it i mean that's when you have the that's when you exceed expectation right and that's when you shine that's when you get to really take it to the next level so never say no and what does it do do you know what happens like psychologically when you tell somebody no what's happening in their head like what's it's just I mean, I don't know how far you want to take it, but I'm just curious. No, it, it's, it's, I know exactly what's going on, man. It, it, you know, when a customer walks in a restaurant, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but their first impression is the host or hostess. It's a guy or a girl standing there. They're probably making minimum wage or a couple of dollars above that. That's their first impression, and it shouldn't be. I mean, unless you train that person perfectly, they should thank you so much for coming in oh my god i love your dress would you get those shoes just find something in common with that customer nobody does that they go hi how many in your party here right this way they slap the menus on the table and walk away <laughs> it's like uh, and and everybody does that so you just get used to it there's still a few restaurants like johnny Carab. i think you brought his name up yeah he's a great guy you walk in there twice or three times in a month i guarantee you they will know your name they would know where you like to sit, and they would treat you like family. They do a really, really good job, and there's a reason they've been around for 25-plus yeah. years. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I, I want to give uh, Grant uh, time on the mic because he's sitting over here so patiently. Thank you, Grant. Uh, any other words you want to get? Any other people that really influenced you before we switch the, the conversation over to get Grant's come-up story? What's that, what's that question? I'm sorry. Any, any other things that you want to get out before we switch our attention no, to Grant? No, no, no. Um, go ahead and switch over to Grant. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I'll have some more down the road. So, Grant – same thing, man. Where does the story start from you for you? When did you know this was going to be your career? Um, I think uh, you know, I grew up in Europe, so um, I think uh, living in uh, Belgium. I think at the age of about twelve, 
I was going to a movie downtown with a couple of friends, and I uh, never made the movie. I went to a bar called Half and Half, had a glass of wine and a <laughs> little glass of beer. And, uh, you know, mind you, this is in, uh, in Belgium. This is probably, you know, I think it was in the Grand Place, right off the Grand Place. And, uh, <laughs> We're at the Luge lessons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I in thought the I, summer. I saw that. I, I remember reading that you were you grew up in Europe, and I yeah. I almost didn't say anything because I don't I don't hear an accent. <laughs> no, no, no. My parents are from Texas. My dad okay. was born in the Panhandle. My okay. mom is you know they grew up on the farm. Gotcha, so gotcha. They're, yeah, Texas, true and true. Uh, my dad was in the army, then was overseas. But uh, what was it about this so, experience? You brought us to this experience. Yeah, yeah. Or? So uh, again, you know, living in Europe, growing up in Europe. Uh, there was a different uh, attitude towards uh, food, wine, uh, th- than what I experienced when I first moved to the United States. But at 12 years old, I think, um, you know, like I said, I was going to a movie, but we decided to go to the half and half bar. And we went in there, and I still remember to this day, we walked in, and this bar's probably been around for 300 years, and walked in, sat down in this red leather banquet, old school bar, and the server came over uh, an old lady and uh you know asked for our order wasn't anything out of the ordinary um and we you know we we ordered the half and half which was what the bar was kind of friendly named uh at least by us and uh and they brought it on a silver tray with some peanuts and a glass of white wine and a little beer and I just remember at that point how, how that experience was, you know, they didn't, they treated us with respect. Uh, and even though we were 12 or 13, you know, uh, they didn't, uh, you know, again, this is in Belgium. So what was the half and half? Was that half? <laughs> that was half that. Yeah, no. Well, you literally on a silver tray, there was peanuts in a, in a silver bowl. And then there was a glass of wine that was probably about a three, four ounce pour. And then there was a beer. So oh, it was half, half, half and half, half okay. wine, okay, half beer. Gotcha, gotcha. Sorry. And, uh, so, uh, but we sat there and we, and we kind of enjoyed it, but we, um, you know, we, I remember growing up going to restaurants with my parents every once in a while in, in Belgium. And I think, uh, they taught me how to dine. Uh, I was watching people all the time in the dining room and, you know, they have great restaurants. These weren't fine dining restaurants. These are just little kind of more, I would call cafes, hole in the wall type places, but everybody there had a way about kind of conducting themselves. And I think I was just even uh, when I was six years old, I remember eating three shrimp cocktails because I liked it, and then had bolognese. Then I had a steak au poivre, and I just uh, the food was just incre- you know I just kept eating and watching how people just uh, really kind of dedicated their time and, and conversation to the food and, and the experience. Yeah, the energy was just uh, you know palpable, you know, and you could feel it. So um, I think you know from five to twelve or thirteen, and from that point on. My mom was a great cook. I used to always be in the kitchen with her, watching her cook. I would cook meals with her and things like that. You know, um, so I think those experiences from an early age uh, is what kind of really intrigued me. And every time I was out, I was always kind of peeking into the kitchens and restaurants. So there's kind of like an underlining lesson on, on hospitality here too. That even though you're a young a young guy, were you with your friends too? I think I picked that up from where yes. you saw that. You're a young guy, and, and these people treated you and your friends just like they would anybody else right and yeah. you never know uh, who you're serving right so treat everybody like they're that vip exactly i mean you could be the son of the president you know who knows yeah. or the son of some 
whatever. You don't know you who, know? You're, who you're going to be serving next. Exactly. And just to have that, that high level of hospitality, regardless of whatever the situation is, I highly recommend you do not serve 13-year-olds beer and wine. But this is a different time, different country, different yeah. you know, culture. Uh, anyway, really just wanted to highlight that. Uh, when did you first work in a restaurant? When did that happen? I think it was, uh, you know, when I moved back, uh, when I moved to the United States and, uh, you know, like I think everybody at some point you get a job working in restaurants. Um, I think it was TGI Fridays. No, no, think about it. He didn't, he didn't, he came from here. He didn't know what was cool. He didn't know what was, you know. Oh, no, no. Yeah, you're right. No, no. Me coming, you know, growing up in the United States, I want to work at, you know, well, you had service, you know, you had a waiter or something. He, on, you know what he see. thought was a cool restaurant? He got a job. He called up his friends. He goes, dude, you won't believe I got a job here. I can get all of you guys a job. Burger King. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Yeah. It was Taco Bueno. Oh, Taco Bueno. I knew it was, it was somewhere where you order through a speaker. That's oh, all yeah. I know. I was, well, actually, I went to, uh, so when I, yeah, I moved to Dallas, actually, went to SMU for about five minutes and uh, realized I didn't fit in there, uh, probably because, you know, my upbringing in, in Belgium, my culture was completely different, you know. I do recall, I mean, this is off the, you know, uh, kids were, you know, chugging beers through beer bongs. I didn't even know what the hell a beer bong was. I just looked at them. I thought, that's just the most stupid thing I've ever seen. And then they said, we're going to go join this fraternity. I'm like, a fraternity? Why would you join a fraternity where they make you do stupid things like that? So I would go down and went to the 7-Eleven to try to uh, buy uh, a Heineken, which was the only good beer I could find in there. And the guy asked me for an ID, and I said, I don't I don't What do you mean? I'm trying to buy some beer from you, you know, a Heineken. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't even realize that's how naive I was growing up in Europe and then come to the United States. Can we timestamp this? Not the age you or anything, yeah. but I'm just curious to get a sense of what, what, what where, where were you, like 90s? Oh, uh, it was Late in 80s? Uh, 84. 84, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Got yeah. you, got you. 1984, yeah. So I think the drinking age was 19 at the time, and I was 17. Gotcha. So, uh, so, uh, any key mentors, any key work experiences that really kind of helped you see the big picture and really formed you, uh, formed who you are today, maybe even steered you in this direction that you're on now? Um, honestly, I don't know if I have any mentors in the sense that there was one person. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think most of, the, most of it was subconsciously picking up on the experiences as a kid, like I was saying, from maybe age five. From this, you know, as from the time I could remember, you know, being in a in a place, I just always remember wanting to be in restaurants, and I would watch like the maitre d's in these restaurants do tableside flambe of you know bananas fosters, uh, uh, and just the way they conducted themselves, and and kind of watching the clientele how they would uh, just you know be kind of they were all happy and enjoying themselves and i just always thought that was uh fascinating to to me but i think there was just a combination it wasn't someone specific uh honestly i think it was just a combination of a lot of experiences that i would pick up on and most of those experiences were not just from a one person but more like a, a dining experience if that makes sense or not absolutely so what were you doing professionally before the restaurant industry uh, I was bartending. I was, uh, you know, that's where Charles and I met. It was at a nice house, actually, um, bartending, waiting tables, uh, you know, the whole gauntlet. But primarily, I was bartending at the time uh, when Charles and I met, uh, and uh, that's where we became friends and kind of started uh, connecting on on a common, you know, idea of doing something 
we didn't know it at the time. I don't think we were just talking about food and doing, you know, talking about what friends talk about. But uh, I think it was kind of the base, the foundation of what would later become, you know, our Clark Cooper concepts and yeah. our attitude and our approach to the company. Uh, I think came, you know, uh, you know, Charles mentioned he started at 34 to go to culinary school. I kind of got a later start as well. You know, I think we both kind of. Uh, it helped us in the sense that to frame who we were, we were more confident. So when we did open our restaurant, we 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 knew what we knew, and we were passionate about what we wanted to do. And honestly, we didn't really care what anybody else thought about it. We just thought this was the best way for, for us. This is what we would like to do. If or this is the type of restaurant we would want to go to, and I think we we were committed to that. And I think. That's kind of the driving force, I think, when we say passion is that you just have to find something that you, uh, you know, you are 100 percent committed to that you would do for free and that you, do, you can't worry about what everybody else because, you know, everyone's going to tell you that's a bad idea. That's a crazy concept. That won't work. Uh, kind of like these you know, interviews you do. You know? <laughs> yeah. So there's always, you know, people are going to doubt you. Or, yeah. or, or, you know, so I always, uh, you know, I have that 75% rule. I always come up with a concept. And a lot of times I'll talk about it like it's real. Because if you just go up to someone and say, hey, I have this idea to do uh, whatever, they're like, oh, I'm not sure about that. But if you say, yeah, yeah, I was in Seattle. I went to this place. And they were doing this, this, and that. And they're like, and it had a line out the door, and it was really good. Tell and they're like, cereal you know. Bar. Tell you know. About cereal bar. Yeah. So, uh, he has a concept called cereal bar. I'm telling everybody. <laughs> so uh, this is a good point to take our first break. We'll be right back to kind of talk about what this vision was and, and how you guys started making your vision, your dreaming, into a reality. So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. All right, we're back and um, kind of paint this picture for us. Uh, what these early days were like, you were bartending, Charles was coming in as a, a patron and you just started you know, visioning, take us through the evolution of how this became talk to actual reality and take us through those steps that you took to make it happen. Um, so yeah, we were friends. Uh, I think it was 1987. We had both been backpacking in Europe. We had saved our money. Uh, and I think that was, uh, again, the start of our, uh, friendship. And from that point, um, I think that was about the time, a couple, about a year or two later, Charles decided to go to culinary school in Houston, I had moved to Austin at the time and was working in a restaurant uh, over in Austin and doing sales and other things. But um, about, well, I guess it was right after uh, 
Charles graduated from culinary school, that he got a job, and then uh, I actually moved to Houston. I think he called me. I said, Grant, get Houston, man. And so we uh, worked at a restaurant called De Capos on the Parkway. Uh, Charles was the chef, and I was a waiter there. And then uh, from that point, we... You know, that was kind of the, the start of everything here in Houston. Okay. So at this point, are you guys living living intentionally with the idea that you know you're going to be business partners or someday? Or did that conversation not happen yet? Um, not only did the conversation really ever happen. We, we started a restaurant called Tosca with another uh, individual uh, and a group of about 25 investors at the time. Uh, that was the first kind of restaurant we did. And uh, that opened in 1998. Uh, and then subsequently, about two years later, Charles and I left that restaurant uh, on our own accord to to do something with just the two of us. And I think that's at that point is when in 2000 we uh, left uh, Tosca and we walked out and we said we're going to open a restaurant in a year. Okay. From that day. Okay. So let's backpedal a little bit. Um, you what was the name of the restaurant you mentioned? That started with the D. D-, D- Oh, De Capos. De Capos. De Capos. So, that's, Capos Cafe so this is the first time you guys are actually working together in the same room. In a restaurant. Same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the first time we'd ever worked yeah. together. What did you guys learn about each other during this time? Being able to, to see the other man in his element doing what he does. Well, I was a the chef there, and I was kind of – I did the wine list. I did, I did everything in the restaurant. It was kind of my baby. The owners didn't really know about restaurants that much, but they – they come into some money, and they wanted to open a restaurant, and that was the chef. I interviewed. I'd never really cooked in a kitchen before. And so I got the job kind of just through luck. And so I actually did pretty well, but Grant came to work there, and uh, we were like best friends. And uh, and everybody knew that. So, you know, he would – you know, Grant's over in the corner. What are you drinking a beer, man? We're in service. What are you doing? What are you, what are you doing talking to this girl? Come wait on this table. So I would scream at Grant, and then later on I'd go to him, hey, man, I'm sorry for screaming at you. I just – I can't show favoritism, man, whatever. So, we, you know, we were thick as thieves, whatever. But uh, that's how we kind of, you know, first worked together. Okay. So, I mean, you – You had a chef inter- there too, Scott Tyser. Oh, he's got Tyson. We almost got <laughs> into it outside for his uh, sauce. <laughs> there was a guy hired. He had tattoos. He had tattoos all over his face. And I go, Grant, whatever you do, don't say anything about this guy's tattoos. He's on his face. He's, you know, he's sensitive. Don't say anything about his tattoos. Grant goes, come on, man. You know me. I'm not going to say anything. So Grant walks up to the guy the first day. He goes, what's up, tattoo boy? <laughs> the guy lasted two days. Uh, why would you get a tattoo in your face if you're sensitive about it? Oh anyway, uh, so what did you guys learn about each other in these early days working together? I know you got to, you got to see each other do their – because, I mean, you were a chef. I'm sure you experienced this food before working together. He was your bartender, so you, got to, you know he was good at what he did. Uh, but did you learn anything about character? And did you know that each other would make good business partners at this time? I think that, we were just working. I don't know. Yeah. We were working. We were, you know, we we were roommates. So, uh, and we were around each other all the time. You we were at work we or after work. So we were, you know, I think we, we were just going twenty four seven. Really, we, I mean, we partied together. We hung know? out together twenty four seven. Grant and I kind of talked a language that none of our other friends talked in a way about food, about passion, and all that stuff. And you know, we were just really, really good friends, th- and we, we kind of finished each other's sentences when it came into the restaurant business. And then from this day on, you know, uh, when we would design a restaurant or pick out furniture and stuff, it's like I remember one night years ago, this customer wanted the, uh, some wine to go with uh, maybe a, a rabbit or something, but 
he was by himself or he, was, he just wanted one glass each. So Grant went and got a half bottle of this wine. I went and got a half bottle. We both showed up at the table, and we both had the same half bottle. <laughs> it was a, a really obscure, you know, Sancerre that nobody would have ordered. And so we both came to the table with this bottle of wine. So we think alike when it comes to what the customer needs. And I think that's why we get along so good because we – Going back, we anticipate what the customer needs yeah. or wants. I think we had an attitude too. You know, I mean, even though Charles was in the kitchen and I was in the you know waiting tables at that restaurant, um, I don't know. I think we were just a little more uh, aggressive, but I think we were just kind of uh, confident in knowing what food was all about. And I think a lot of the servers didn't really, you know, they were they were servers, but they weren't really into the food. So I think. That went a long ways as far as a kind of a common common thread. So you know, I would always be checking to see what Charles was coming up with on the food. Even you know, we were having a good time. Don't get me wrong, but we were serious about the food part. Yeah, and I think it portrayed to the customers that were in that restaurant and and then in the other restaurants when we went to Tosca. The customers, you know, I think. Uh, we could connect. I could go up to Charles in the kitchen and say, hey, I need this on the fly uh, because so-and-so is sitting over here and they don't like that tuna yeah. or whatever it is. And he would trust me and I would trust him in the sense of getting whatever it was that would make that customer happy. It sounds like just being on the same page very early on, but just a mutual respect. And then another thing that I don't, I think can't be overemphasized is a general friendship and appreciation for each other, which I think if you're going into a partnership with somebody, you have to enjoy the people you're working with, right? You have to, you have to like them because if you don't like them, how you can do business with them you know like at the end of the day you have to enjoy the person because you're spending almost your entire life with them you know like yeah as a business partner especially in the early days uh anything worth touching on with your time was it frasca uh going back i know there's the, the restaurant you guys op- or worked at 98 oh tosca tosca, tosca. tosca. that yeah. was just a restaurant uh you know i think that was a it was a helpful tool to to learn we you know we opened that like i said with an, uh, another individual and we had 26 investors from $5,000 investor and on up. So I think, uh, you know, we were working, you know, 18 hours a day and yeah. uh, 100% dedicated to, to something. $24,000 uh, a year. And, you know, we were making essentially no money, but it was okay. But, but you because were making- we were doing something we, we enjoyed and, and it was work, but it, at the same time, it you know it was good. I mean, we wouldn't, I never thought about it as painful. Or, it was an education, though. You got yeah. to open a restaurant and manage yeah. a restaurant on somebody else's dollar. We put our names you on know? the map. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Sh- yeah, it was it was a little avant garde in the sense that you know the way we we were doing tapas, uh, we were downtown. We had music playing, uh, live music up front. Uh, you know, it was it was downtown, so it was a little edgy. So you opened this restaurant, right? Correct. Were you part- so what, oh, yeah. what were the yeah. biggest lessons? This is the first restaurant you both opened, or did you open a restaurant? No, we for- opened. No. This is the first one we both opened. Okay, yeah. so what were the big? I think this is so important to go work for somebody else who is opening restaurants and learn as much. Running a restaurant is a completely different beast than opening a restaurant, right? Oh God, yeah. So well, what they're both the- beasts. Yeah, they're yeah. both beasts, but two different beasts. So it's great that if you have, you can have twenty years experience working in a restaurant and still be clueless when it comes to time to open a restaurant because well, so you're responsible for it so to me it's like having kids so mm-hmm. you're responsible so you know when you're when when you're grown you know when you're an individual you're a man or woman you have no kids that's one way of life and then when you have kids then your life changes so i would kind of kind of correlate that in the restaurant once you know you work in a restaurant you work for someone's one way but once you own a restaurant and you're responsible for those employees and you're responsible for everything that's in those four walls. It's like having kids. And, you know, it changes. It takes it to a whole new level. And then I think you, you either figure it out 
uh, which we, you know, you know, we learn something new every day. But you know, you figure it out, and you have to figure it out because well, there's no other alternative. What were there's those no biggest lessons you learned at Tosca's early on to set you up for success when you guys broke off to do your own thing? Um, I think it was more. Uh, you have to put in the time and the and the knowledge of understanding, and the and you have to kind of portray that uh, to the staff because at the end of the day, if you have your staff that doesn't really. Trust, you know, trust what you're saying, or they don't believe in what you're saying. Uh, which is why I use sports analogies a lot because I feel like it's the same thing. You have to get your team to believe in whatever your game plan is, and that's what you learned don't. at Traskas. I'm sorry, that's what you learned at Traskas. No, Traskas. Sorry, my notes are on the other. Those screen. are things that yeah, that we kind of learned. You know, we we were learning on our own. You know, we we didn't. Uh, I wouldn't say we'd had anybody necessarily telling us. We were just doing it because again, I think we were older. You know, as far as uh, restaurant owners for our first go around but so we had some life skills i think to, to play off of okay you know i think those experiences came in uh handy as far as how to just talk to people literally talk to people you know yeah you surprised how many people can't talk yeah to an individual that's standing right in front of them uh so we would kind of just go over the fundamentals to our staff our host our servers about just communicating to the individual and being confident and being themselves uh and I think we still use those philosophies to this day. Uh, I think the fundamentals, the basics of restaurant, uh, you know, operations is uh, kind of lost in a lot of applications. People are more rely, you know, relying on uh, social media and likes and things like that as opposed to actually taking care of the customer uh, and those type of things. So uh, I think those fundamental things that we learned back 25 years ago, whenever it was, uh, are still existing today. So communicating the big picture, getting everybody on, on board, but also the little details. Communicating the basics, the, 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 the building blocks that everybody needs to be good at their job. Communicating those things. Chef Clark, what were, were the big things you pulled from this experience before breaking off to do your own thing? I'm sorry, repeat the last the, the, What were the big things that uh, you pulled away from this experience working in this uh, restaurant, opening this restaurant together with Grant? I just the value of a customer is one thing I, I remember. I learned, uh, you know, we opened downtown Houston, so uh, Monday through Friday, there's a lot of uh, uh, business people down there. So they would come three to four times a week to eat, and and that was the biggest compliment is, is knowing these customers. And we still have uh, Randy Rehals, Fred Warlock, all these guys have been eating with us since '98. Tosca. So these guys are all getting ready to retire now. They sort of eat with us in their late 30s, 40s. And just the value of a customer, these guys coming in, you know, three days a week. Uh, I always tell other chefs, I'm not in this, this for to show what kind of food I can cook and do whatever. Grant and I always agreed we're in the ass-kissing business. That's, that's what... I don't care about a James Beard Award. I care about asses and seats. Mm-hmm. That's what pays the bills. But I try to do the best I can do in the restaurant. But what comes down to it is having that customer come back in. So that's what I take away from it is is taking care of the customer once you get them in. First impressions are everything. That's in, any, that's in business. That's in parties, whatever. So when a customer comes in first time, if they're not dressed up to the nines or in a Rolls Royce or whatever, if they rode a bicycle here, they're in shorts and tennis shoes, treat them like, you know, they're the king of Spain or whatever. And we've always done that. I'll, I'll go to a table at lunch and someone has 
maybe not the best table. And I say, you know what? I got a better table. Come walk with me. I'm going to put you right by the window. I'm going to do this. And I, those little things, to me, from my perspective, they're not big. They might not mean a lot. But for the, from that customer's perspective, it means the world. I forget when I walk out to a table how I'm in my chef whites. I'm a chef, and I've been in the business for a long time. If I just go say hello to someone on their birthday, it means a lot to them. And, and I, I forget that. Yeah. So the the two or the three big things I'm I'm taking away. Um, first, like you mentioned, just the first impression. How to make a first impression and really go out of your way because the little things that you can do might, might feel like a little bit a little thing for you, but for your guests, it's a huge gesture. And then from what from your conversation, Grant, from what I pulled from you, is just the importance of communicating the details, the little things, giving your people the foundation, then also being able to communicate the big picture, like why are we here, what's our purpose, and what are we all here to do. So those those skills are so important. Um, give us one more skill on communication one thing we can do to communicate better and to empower our people better with our communication can you can you do that for us um yeah i like to use analogies a lot because sometimes people can't relate especially if they're younger the staff uh you know i try to find out what their interests are as far as uh servers hosts anyone that's in the restaurant um and try to kind of paint a picture for them uh and use something that they may be able to kind of figure out relatable Relatable, exactly. So, uh, but at the end of the day, we we always keep emphasizing. I always tell them, listen, just pretend. I mean, you wouldn't if your mom walked in here. This is the way you should conduct yourself as far as service and, and how you should be. You should be a gentleman. Yeah. And we always say that. You know, we need to walk around here like tango dancers with confidence, uh, with precise moves. But you know, it's it's sexy. You know, I like to use that word a lot. We use it. You know, it's it's a certain uh, je ne sais quoi that people don't really pick up on. You know. Yeah. But it's it's uh, you feel it if everybody in the restaurant's doing it. You yeah. know, as a as a consumer or as a customer, you're sitting and you can see that people are two steps ahead, trying to open doors, trying to do again all the little things of being a gentleman. Essentially, it's not that hard, but you'd be surprised how many places really don't do the simple things. And I think us for us taking care of the little things. From, and trying to repeat that every day, twice a day, is the reason why I try to get the team motivated like a like a football game. You got to get these people pumped up because it's a grind. It's the same thing over and over and over again. How do we motivate them? You know, we have to motivate them differently each day, each shift, every pre-shift meeting is different. You know, we got to uh, dangle a carrot. Sometimes you got to be stronger. Sometimes you got to be, you know, a little hard love. Sometimes you have to be you know, a little more sympathetic. Uh, you know, we treat them a little differently too. You know, not everybody's treated the same. Yeah. You know, so Chef Clark, your big thing was uh, what you pulled from this was just the first impressions and the relationships of your guests. What's one thing that we can all do? One of your like secret tricks, if you will, uh, that something you use to make that first impression. Something that you go to if you really want to make an impression on somebody. What's one thing that you do often to make a good first impression? I, I come out of the kitchen a lot. Um, I think when a customer walks in, before they even sit down, I, I try to come out and, and, and greet them at the door if, to make them feel special, whatever. And um, it's not even to make them feel special because I still love doing it. So I, I enjoy doing it. So I think coming out of the kitchen, we have an open kitchen in the bees and I've been there forever. So when I come out of the kitchen, you know, you can see me walking out and I, I think going to the customer and celebrating maybe their birthday or saying hello to their kids. And something Grant and I started years ago is on birthdays we send out cotton candies. And it's strange, but 
you know, the little kid sees a cotton candy and these next year, I got, I got one kid's been coming since he was like five years old and they're, you know, they're 20 something years old now, but little things, just making that special, going back to the key lime pie that Grant bought for the lady on her birthday years ago. Uh, I, I just find out if, if the owner comes out and makes that impression or talks to the customer or finds common ground, I think that's the biggest impression you can yeah. make. So what I'm hearing from you is just recognizing your guests, taking the time to actually step out of the kitchen and just simply see them and recognize them and then care enough to take it one step further, to show that you're listening, to show that you're not just going through the motions, but to really show them that you care by doing that one little extra thing, that little detail, that little I was paying attention can, can go so far. Yeah. Um, but I think those things are just not to, to, you know, Charles said to kiss everybody's ass, but it was the way we were brought up. It wasn't, I mean, we're not trying to kiss their ass in the sense that tr- because it's, it, it was just, that's what we should do. That's, that's why you're in this business, right? I mean, we, we just did it instinctively. And I think we were doing it, um, you know, when we had a visa, we opened them, we were pounding that into the staff, you know, and, and it was just then became second nature, you know, and we get, you know, letters, phone calls and stuff now 15, 20 years later from people that have said, you know, we really appreciate the way you guys kind of instill that kind of mindset, you, you know, know you're taking making, care of people because yeah. you're supposed to. You're making a point right now, which is like the ethos of the Restaurant Unstoppable mission is that uh, we can transform the next generation by sh- giving them these values, by instilling our values that are given to us that your parents gave you into the next generation. And the restaurant industry has such influence, right? We, we touch so many young lives. We transform so many people. We can bring so many people up to our level. If I can share your knowledge, your stories with other people in the industry who have that kind of impact on the next generation of professionals the power is just incredible but i'm right there with you yeah um so abiza uh you guys uh, eventually decided to break off do your own thing um how did you make it happen how did you get the money were you going back to past guests were you were, were you, did you have investors like we had one investor ray wheeler uh at the time he uh put up the money uh that was in 2000 and like we said, we opened the restaurant a year after we walked out of Tosca, essentially, okay. uh, to when the we day almost. Out, what, you, what, what you're <laughs> failing to not understand is we had a third partner, and it was not – Grant and I were very young, um, not young age-wise, but we were green. We didn't get everything in writing, and we kind of got – Okay, this is huge. This is yeah. – like we, a lot of people call these failures. I call them lessons. We yeah. call, It was a definite lesson. <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we should send this guy a thank you card because – we kind of took off after that, but we kind of got screwed out of a business deal. And we said, you know, one day we got squeezed. Yeah, at three o'clock in the afternoon, I said, I'm done. I'm going to go with my own restaurant, Grant. You got to go with me. Grant goes, I'm with you. We're the partners. So we walked out, and we we uh, we had one guy that said, if you ever do anything, or ever want to do anything, I'll be your investor. And and uh, most people say that 99.9 percent are full of crap. But this guy was not. Well, keep your list of you know the, those people that might yeah. be full of crap and go through them some day later when, when you have the opportunity. Yeah, one guy. That was yep. it. Yeah. So real quick before we move on and talk about this guy and how he helped you open your, your vision, um, what are the lessons you could give to somebody listening to this who might be going into a partnership real soon or be having the conversations? What information would you give your past self to protect yourself from that first uh, business deal? I hate have, to uh, Go ahead. Uh, well, you would have, you know... at have an attorney look at it, you know, that represents you. Um, 
you know, and uh, I think that would be a one step. Have some other people look at it that you trust, you know, that are outside of the of the deal, so to speak. You know, maybe uh, they can look at it and make sure that it's, they're seeing it from a different perspective. Because so, when you're looking at, you're looking at. You know, especially us at the time, we were just ready you're to go, hungry. go deal. We were sign anything, right? Yeah, we. Yeah. You know, like I said, we were making twenty four thousand dollars, but twenty four thousand seemed pretty good to me at the time. Yeah. We were like whatever, you know. Yeah. Because uh, again, we just wanted to do what we wanted to do, so it wasn't about uh, the money uh, or anything. It was more about we just jumped into it. Mm. And uh, so, knowing it, what you know specifically, what would have been in the contract that you would have liked to see now, then, like written in the contract that would have protected yourself? Just ownership. Well, I mean, yeah. what's your just as the restaurant progresses, the age of the restaurant, as the debt is paid off, what your ownership is at that time. Or, Usually, or, when you open a restaurant, you owe the investors ninety percent of the restaurant. You get ten percent, and once you pay off the investors, it kind of flip flops. You get ninety percent, the investors keep ten percent. So, we just we should have had everything in writing and had an attorney. We didn't have an attorney look at it. We didn't. We believed everybody. We thought we were all friends, and turned out Grant and I were the only ones that were true friends, and the, and the other guy wasn't. So, what did he say? I'm, I, I guess I'm curious. Is like, what was the situation, the scenario that we can identify, so we don't make the same mistake? Can you paint that picture for us? The scenario that when we decided that that wasn't gonna, this wasn't yeah. going to work. Yeah, I think it was when they sat down with us and said something to this effect that. We're going to bring this guy in. They brought a guy in uh, that was a corporate, cheesy restaurant operator to oversee the things that we were basically doing, that he became our boss. And, you know, working 18 hours, and then this guy didn't know didn't know how we run our restaurants. And, again, there's more than one way to skin a cat in this business, so we're not, you know, taken away from how people do conduct their business, but it certainly wasn't the way we were doing it. And he didn't even understand the food, which was uh, really pissed us off. He didn't know. You know, he wanted to set uh, all these different standards and and basically become our boss and and tell us how we should be doing things. And it just didn't set well. So, uh, uh, you know, I think that was it. I mean, I think the next day, literally, that was was the decision. We just walked out with nothing. So... Now you guys are on your own. You you, you had you, that was the, you know the writing was on the wall at that deal. You didn't want anything to do with it, and you go off to, to start your own restaurant. You have an investor. What was that experience like? It was great. I mean, we, we were excited. We were pumped up. We were motivated for sure uh, because uh, you know doing something for two years for and working as hard as we were. And, you know, us two being on the same page and clicking, uh, you know, it was like uh, it was like a good dance, you know. And, and so we were excited. We were confident, but we were also kind of uh, kind of nervous in a, in, a, in a but in a good way. You should always have a little fear in your in your stomach. We still do every day. I mean, sometimes I'll walk in and I'll still get like a pit in my stomach because you're just like pumped up. You're so pumped up. You got to like calm just, yourself I down. I was just saying to, to you guys before we hit record for this interview that I still get jacked up for every interview. Yeah. I totally relate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this morning I got jacked up. I was thinking about something we're doing on this other concept and I was like, man, I got to write this shit down. Uh, so, uh, uh, so yeah, we just, uh, we were really excited when we, when we did everything, man, we, we hired, uh, uh, an architect, uh, that we worked with that was up and coming. He was brand new. His name was Farron Streif. Uh, and we, we worked day and night. Uh, I was at his house, you know, we were putting together copper pipes for the faucets at Ibiza and stuff like that. And 
you know, uh, we put, put a tables. tile in the bathroom. We we couldn't afford the tile guy. We were running out of money, so Grant and I cut tile and put tile on the bathroom. It looks pretty good to this day. <laughs> yeah, Every time I go to the restroom, I look at it. Man, that thing is still jacked up on the left. And uh, thank God we screwed it all up, so it's all consistently yeah. screwed. Yeah, up, but it's it, good. Yeah, it looks timeless now. It looks yeah. good, like it was meant to be. I love it. But love we were it. just again, we were just motivated. We were we were real confident. We wanted to do uh, something that we knew. For example, with the wine pricing, we were really really excited to launch. A whole new way of philosophy as far as like the business side of it from uh, from uh, from uh, the wine pricing and all that. So uh, you know, again, we had people telling us we were crazy that would never work. Why you want to price it? Why would you not just price it at three hundred percent like everyone else? And we're like, no, 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 no. We want we want to do this because this is the way we would enjoy a restaurant. Yeah, this is something I want to get into because it's one of the things that is a unique selling proposition to your brands across the boards, which is the wine service. You have a very unique wine service. Get into the details of why you chose this wine service. Again, because it was something we believed in. We believed in the fact that you shouldn't be overcharging the person that's sitting down in your restaurant and you shouldn't be screwing them. Literally, you're screwing this customer. You're saying that you want them in your restaurant, yet you're screwing them on the wine, right? So there isn't a reason for a 300% markup. There really isn't. I don't care what your rent is and where you are and all those excuses. You can charge less on the wine. And it's worked out to our advantage because, again, you know, it was something that we knew was the right thing to do. And that by doing that, we also kind of took away the pretentiousness of wine. You know, that was another thing. Uh, Lower the barrier. Like, you yeah, make it more accessible yeah, than people makes, are more makes it more approachable, less intimidating. You know, like I said, I had my first glass of wine when I was 12, but I was educated about how to drink, not, you know, you know six-pack of beer bongs. And it was <laughs> – so, again, I think by taking all the pricing down – uh, I think it, it you know, made our restaurants more approachable. We had more people in, and once they came in and felt the energy, the food, the music, it was a whole new, different way of doing a restaurant at the time. And I think that style is infectious, you know? And I think that's uh, the bloodline of what we do. And I think that's our attitude, you know, we, that we want to serve wine. Half the people that make wine are farmers, and they're smoking joints, they're having a good time, <laughs> whatever, you know? But... You know, you don't need to overfuss it. It's just wine. Yeah. And I think it's just so important to do to stand out some way somehow, right? And that wine service was a unique selling proposition. Where else could you go and get wine slightly marked up over retail? Uh, and you, you did whole bottle service. Um, whole which bottle, is, yeah. Was that whole the only bottle, option? half bottle. We had a huge half bottle selection. We had more half bottles than some people had full wow. bottles, you know. Uh, champagne, you know, everything. We, we brought in rosés. I mean, we had every kind of wine you, you can imagine. We had guests say, well, I don't understand, you know, this bottle is only $12, you know. I said, well, we'll charge you 24 yeah. if it makes you feel more like it's going to be better, but it's $12. And we had a guy that would sit at a table of 32 uh, and get a bottle of that $12 bottle of wine and a, and a, and a half of chicken and, uh, you know, but he was there religiously. And, and we have numerous customers like that, but I think that was the foundation of building a lot of uh, friendships with our customers. So looking back, knowing what you know now, opening over was it a total of six restaurants I counted over the years, some have yeah. opened, some are closed. Um, what would you have done differently with Abiza, knowing what you know now? Anything that didn't go well that was learned the hard way that you can share with our listeners? At where? At Abiza? Abiza, yeah. I, I would... Our biggest mistake is, uh, I think, you know, we opened a restaurant a few years ago, and it was a little bit too large, and um, 
and I think was um, this a salt? Uh, we, oh, salt yeah, air. salt air, salt air, yeah. and it was just too large. And um, it was a second generation restaurant, meaning it was it had already been a restaurant. We really had no choice in making it a different size. I think that's a really big lesson because we've actually took that that uh, that ideal, not ideal, that mistake. And learn from it because our next restaurants, we're designing a few more restaurants right now, and they're not that big. They're 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 made more. Uh, they're in tune to what we our yeah. original Ibiza, you know, about a four or five thousand square foot footprint exactly. and things of that nature. But we're not afraid. So you know, we have that seventy five percent rule. So we'll have four or five, up to even nine or ten concepts that are various uh, you know sizes. But you know, I'll pass them by Charles and. Half the time you'll look at me crazy, but you know, the thinking is I'd rather like try something and fail than never, you know, again, than never even try it or be too scared to try it. You know, I think it's you know, you only go around once. I'd rather, you know, there's a lot of different things we can do and there's a lot of things we want to do still. So, uh, I think you just have to be open to it, but you know, you got to be smart about it too. You got to, you know, do the risk calculations too. So, we're getting to the point now where I'm just going to kind of have you guys freestyle. If there's anything that you know to be true, uh, one thing that you think you do exceptionally well, or one thing that you know is a testament to your success, what would I mean, each of you come up with one thing that you, you can kind of dive into real quick before we go to the speed round and wrap things up? Um, again, passion. I think, uh, you know, the key to our success, I think, is being committed to what, are, what it is that we want to do uh, and not really look back. But I think it's our attitude a little bit as well and taking care of the, eat the small things. I mean, I got an argument with one of our general managers two nights ago because we were talking about how many likes we had on social media and we didn't have enough likes. And I said, I don't really give a fuck about the likes. What I care about are the people that are sitting in our restaurants and the people that come up to Charles and shake his hand and shake my hand. If I'm in the grocery store, they come up. And for 20-plus years, these people have been coming in our restaurants. And I have staff people come back to us. I have customers that come back to us. I have vendors. And they all say the same thing, that, you know, we like what you guys do. And those are the people that count because word of mouth is what, it, what really puts butts in the seat. And taking care of these people and doing like what Charles said earlier, you know, anticipating, you know, knowing that the cars are pulling up, you know, if it's about to pour down rain, get them an umbrella. And we were constantly teaching every time we're walking in and out of our restaurants, we're teaching 24-7, even the little hostess that just starts or a bus boy, you know. And I think that's what drives us, you know, is, yeah. is that is that kind of teaching. I don't even know if, if, if we're not consciously doing, we're just doing because... It's again. It's like having four hundred kids. You know, yeah. we have five restaurants. I don't know how many employees. Close to four hundred employees, and and they're all like kids. You know, and some are going to behave better than others, but they all want to learn. And I think it's a, that's our job is to kind of teach what we think is the right thing to do. I want to pull back one more layer on this, and I think everything. I love everything you're sharing with us, but how do you remain consistent? How do you operate with that same level of passion? in desire to educate, in desire to make people better after 20, 30 years? How do you keep that level of passion consistent? Fear. <laughs> yeah. Fear of going bankrupt. No, it's just, yeah. it's just, it's just it's in what you. you do every day. It's like I say, it's like opening that stage to a Broadway play. As soon as that curtain opens, man, it's showtime. 
and like like right now we're doing this interview believe me i'm looking at every table i'm looking at every water glass i'm looking at every tea glass i'm, I'm about to motion to her that we need more tea on table 31 i'm watching the room i'm yeah. working the room right now it's just it's just what it's instinct it's what you do typically it, i have yeah. my guests with their back to the dining room i know so, you're killing uh, us right now <laughs> so uh, sorry uh so but it's like Tom Brady, right? He gets himself motivated. Yeah. Right? I think sports is it's the same thing. I mean, literally, if you look at it, you break it down on a smaller, like game to game, day to day, shift to shift, instead of trying to you know see the whole thing as one long grind. Yeah. You got to break it down in smaller pieces. Chef Clark, same question. Uh, I realize you, your daughter is probably showing up any minute. No, She's not already here. Uh, he's having lunch with his daughter. Uh, real quick, uh, what is the biggest thing that you can give us? That the the one thing, just like Grant shared, the one thing that most contributes to your success. What would you say? What's I think going on with you? The one big thing that I'm about is the big picture, and this is this is totally off the service part of it. We closed a restaurant um, a few years ago, Salt Air, and usually when you close a restaurant, uh, the debt, whatever, you, you don't pay your vendors. Most people don't pay their vendors. Hey, hey, went out of business. Sorry, you know, we did, there's no money in the bank. I called up every vendor. And I told them, we're closing this restaurant. We owe you a certain amount of money. I can write you a check for 25 cents on the dollar, or I can pay you in full if you give me six months. Mm. Every one of them said, we'll wait six months. And we paid them off. Every single vendor we paid off. And not many people do that. And to this day, I can call up a seafood guy or a meat guy and say, hey, can I get a year to pay you? They, they will do anything for us now because our word is gold and in this business you're only as good you know as your your last bank statement your last plate of food you put out and grant and i have a great reputation and and that's something we we've worked for our whole lives is yeah. a reputation there's a word for that uh re- reputation and integrity right exactly. doing what you say you're gonna do and, exactly. and and your word is your bond i love it so one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we're gonna bust out a, a true speed round because i want to respect your time we've got a little bit of a late start and technical difficulty so i appreciate you guys Cake makes it easy. Thousands of restaurant operators are using Cake POS and loving it. With its easy, simple to use, and intuitive interface, how could you not? Cake users are achieving peak satisfaction with 24-7 customer support, not to mention lifetime access to Cake University. No wonder customer satisfaction scores are so high. Everything about Cake is simple, including its POS integration with Cake Guest Manager and Google Reservations, which basically allows your guests to book reservations reservations or get on wait lists straight from Google search or Google maps. That's pretty rad. This simple integration alone has increased guest count by as much as 25%. To learn more about how Cake makes it easy, head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can save $750 off activation for Cake Point of Sale. But you have to use my links. Again, that's trycake.com slash unstoppable. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. 
With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions. No more guessing. Other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs, and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on Prime costs. That's awesome. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system, a value of 5K. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Take it away. I think we already just talked about it. Integrity for you, right? Yeah. (laughs) Quick, Grant. Start off first. Uh, Yeah. I mean, Dedication, commitment, passion. I'll take it. What do Attitude. You got, what do you got, Chef Charles? Uh, being 100% ready. You know, since those doors open, everything clean, polished, uh, just just ready for showtime. Grant, what's your biggest weakness? Your biggest Sorry. weakness? Weakness. I think uh, being sometimes too compassionate with staff when you maybe should have cut them loose. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a strength and a weakness because there's it's loyalty. A and a weakness. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. yeah. Um, and Chef Clark, Charles uh, Clark. Probably in the kitchen, uh, not taking the time to train someone as much as I would like to because I would rather do it myself, but I should teach them. Yeah. And uh, maybe you guys can answer this one together. What's one thing you look for when you're building your team? A, a quality of somebody you're hiring? Like, what are, the, what are those attributes you're looking for? Personality. Same. Definitely personality and willis, willingness to, to, to work, you know, to do whatever we, you know, Whatever I'm willing to do, whatever it takes. desire to work. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Staff. Staffing. I think uh, the biggest challenge is, is is also the consumer. Like with the social media, everybody is a food expert. So everybody, you know, from birth eats three times a day, two times a day. So everyone understands food. We're in the one business where everyone has an opinion about food. You walk into a doctor's office, you trust the doctor, and you you're not going to tell him how to fix your broken arm. You just are there here everybody now in this day and age even more so uh you know they have an opinion and they have a uh, a platform to share it so i think that's a challenge yep uh what is one code of conduct or behavior this is a core value something you teach your team uh again i think it is about um learning and the knowledge i guess knowing what what they're uh selling so knowing and then what you're having a uh, swagger, you know, having confidence and doing it their way. You know, we have what I call the cheers factor. You know, we want everybody to feel like they're at home as far as customers. Yeah. So it's more just a continuous uh, training, educating, those type of things. Chef Charles, what's one uh, co- core value or code of, con- code, code of conduct you teach your team? Code of conduct is just um, like going back to anticipate the customer's needs. Um, uh, the simple fundamentals, uh, the fundamentals, if you do the fundamentals, uh, opening a door for a customer, uh, pulling a chair for a customer, those are fundamentals to me. If you get those right, I think everything else will come natural. What is one book that will make us a better person or restaurant owner or operator? One book. Um, 
recently I just read a book. It's a sports book, I guess. A sports <laughs> you love book. those sports. <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually called Shoe Dog. It's a story about Phil Knight and Nike. I thought yep. it was about perseverance. Uh, again, nobody believed in what he was doing. He had he had the uh, that's. Uh, the inside or his idea, you know, 30 years before it ever happened, he was talking about he thought uh, sneakers would be a lifestyle shoe as well as a performance shoe. And now I think sneakers are, are probably the number one selling uh, shoe as far as for category as far as shoes, you know. Yeah. And so I know I just I like stories like that where these people are doing something. And again, 90 percent of the people, including his dad and family, thought he was crazy. Yeah. Uh, you just got to keep, you know, persevering. Do you have one locked in literature, yeah, Charles? Um, there's a book I read called uh, White Heat. It's about a chef called Marco Pere White. Yeah. He's the only chef uh, in the world to get three Michelin stars without going through Paris, without going through France. He did it on English ground. He's an English chef. And uh, he gave the stars back uh, a few years ago and says, hey, you know, I don't want the pressure. Uh, I don't deserve the stars. You take them back. I'll just do my own thing. He's been a chef since late 70s, and he's got an incredible story. Michael Caine, the actor, was his uh, partner. Yeah. Uh, this guy was crazy in the kitchen, and he was he just way ahead of his time. And to, to read this book and, and to see what he's accomplished along the way is just a mind-boggling. Yeah, it's a great book. There's some really uh, embarrassing stories about Gordon Very. Ramsay in there, too, yeah. so it's worth it. <laughs> It's worth uh, reading. Uh, so the next question, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, what they don't do well enough well, is um, take care of the customer. Take care of the little things. What do you guys, Chef? They're too politically correct. They too politically correct? They don't, they don't take care of the customer. Uh, they treat everything not like a number, but it's just it's just they don't make a decision based on that customer's needs. They make a decision based on the movement of the restaurant. I love it. Uh, and what is one technology you've recently adopted that's had a huge impact on your operations? Uh, well, recently we've had a lot on technology, and there's always you know new new technology. We're about to change our uh, point of sale system to to uh, another uh, platform. Can you say which one? Uh, Toast. toast. Was, was there a reason why you went with toast? Uh, yeah, they, I think again their service. Uh, you know, they put a, a, a good product. They have a, a lot of money behind them now uh, as far as what they do. Also, uh, the capabilities. You know, uh, they match up to what we need to be done. Uh, we have a lot of other software things for food costing that we need. Um, you know, I, I failed to mention before you were asking about what makes us successful. Is also, but we have to create a good key, uh, group of key employees that can take what our thought process and our dna and instill that into the rest of the team because you can't be there everywhere so uh those people have helped bring up uh, a lot of things as far as the technology and the, uh, those type of things that help us uh, streamline things awesome and i think chef charles daughter just arrived so this is the last <laughs> question good timing uh the last question i have for you if you got the news you'd be leaving the world tomorrow and all the memories of you your work and your restaurants would, would be lost with your departure with the exception of three things that you know to be true about your success, three things, three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for your legacy and the, for the good of humanity, what would those three things be? You guys would come up with three together. That we can leave behind? Uh, yeah. A good bottle of wine. Okay, that's one. You got one, Chef? <laughs> uh, uh, Grant and I uh, were in our restaurants, uh, day-to-day operations, uh, the whole time we were open. All right, that's that's two. So being your restaurants, what's the third thing you can leave behind? I don't know if you guys want to tag team this one or 
I think you just got to leave, you know, you got to leave behind a trail of good people that have worked for you. So, you know, I think if we have a tree of people that are successful uh, and then 50 years from now, they can say, you know, we used to work for Clark Cooper Concepts and uh, I worked there for two years. I worked there for only one week, but you know what? I learned a lot in one week or I worked there for 10 years. So I guess a, a, a legacy, a tree legacy in a sense. Yeah, and I think that's, that's absolutely makes sense, and I love it. And I think that's one thing that we're all put on this earth to do is to make the next generation better, is to pass it on, is to take it so far and then have the next re- generation take what your progress and start from there. Yeah. Right? And uh, you guys are doing that, and it was an honor to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship, and wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator? Somebody you two respect and admire. That's how I got a hold of you. Uh What's the best way, or sorry, who is one person that you respect? Call him out here. Um, I like Mark Cox. He's not in the restaurant right now, but he had a restaurant for uh, twenty years, and uh, that's a whole other subject. But, Mark you Cox. Know, food critics in this city will uh, give accolades to everybody uh, that's in and out of business for two or three years, but they never really get accolades to the Johnny Carabas, the Mark Coxes of the world, Tony Valone. There's a lot of restaurant people in Houston that have worked their ass off and don't get the, uh, I don't think they get the full respect from the so-called critics. I have to say um, the, the French chef I talked about earlier, Damien Wattel, he was a big influence on me as far as uh, cooking and his style. And to this day, classic French is my favorite cuisine. And he's in San Antonio and he still has a restaurant. He just opened called Bistro 9. Okay. And he's doing very well. But um, yeah, he's my biggest influence. So Damien and Mark, look out. I'm coming after you guys. And how can we connect with you or maybe come join your team? If we are inspired by what, we, by what you shared with us today, uh, we want to come work for you. What's the best way to connect? They can call me on my cell phone number. Clark so, Cooper uh, Concepts. Just, uh, <laughs> ClarkCooperConcepts.com. Yeah, yeah just, just but, go and uh, connect I, with Shannon. But one thing, us. our business cards are in all the restaurants with our cell phone numbers on them. You give uh, me your number. And you I'll know, make sure it's in the show notes. And our email. <laughs> so, I mean, it's readily available. So, uh, so anybody who wants to talk to us, we're, we're in the restaurants. You know, you can find awesome. Charles at Ibiza every day. I'm in and out of the restaurants, other ones. So we're here. All right. Again, thank you guys so much for taking the time. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. All right, there we go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurants Unstoppable. Just a quick reminder that on September 3rd, I am going to be hosting a live webinar with Casey Anton. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash profit first to register for that webinar and get all of your profit first money management system questions answered and to really dive into what makes the restaurant industry unique when it comes to using the profit first system. Get that big picture, hang out with us and it's really important, guys, that you have a system to manage your, your money. Um, this is probably one of my biggest challenges. I am going through the process of implementing the Profit First Money Management System for my own business, and we can go through it together. So again, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash Profit First and come hang out and learn all about the Profit First Money Management System. Peace.